welcome to Dayson Digest. Today is July 1st, 2021, and we are uh, actually going to go over an article on prosthetic joint infections. And I am here with Dr. Ted Hendershot, who is an internationally renowned expert on ortho infections. I know his name from the vertebral osteomyelitis treatment guidelines. And since I've been here at Duke Infectious Diseases, he's been a fantastic colleague and is a huge help for most of us here in the division is uh, helping to figure out how to treat these complicated infections. The title of the article that we're going over today is Antibiotic Therapy for Six or 12 Weeks for Prosthetic Joint Infection. Um, I would say the duration of treatment of joint infection has been in question for a long time. And I think they attempted to satisfy or um, quench this question, but I'm not entirely sure that they did. And so Ted and I are here to discuss this article. Uh, and so maybe I will just do a brief overview of the article and then Ted and I can um, kind of go through some of the questions that came up. And, and, and obviously as I'm going through, Ted, please stop me and tell me some more uh, or, or some important points that I'm missing as we talk about the methods and results. So a little bit of background, you know, as, as an ID physician, this is, um, unfortunately, I feel like the bread and butter of our um, practice. And while it, it does not happen often compared to how many prosthetic joints are placed, it happens often enough that I'd say it, it is, uh, it puts food in our table, if you know what I mean. Like this is uh, how a lot of us make our money, uh, especially in private practice. And and I think if we see it often enough to where we, at least in, in my uh, practice, I can get a little numb to the just tremendous marathon of an uh, of a of a journey that it is when you have a prosthetic joint infection and a lot of these patients will get two stage procedures where you you have your joint removed and a spacer placed and you get treated with antibiotics typically in the US here it's with IV antibiotics unless it's susceptible to something uh, PO that was 100% bioavailable and and then you get another joint after that so you're going that's three uh, big surgeries within a few months uh, period. And, and a lot of that period, you're off your feet and bed bound. And I don't care how old you are, or who you are, that, that's a tremendous uh, tax on your body and in your, your mind and psychologically as well. And so I think it's important for us to remember how much of a, of a, of a just a huge issue it is for somebody to get prosthetic joint infections. Uh, and so clearly we want to be able to treat them effectively so it doesn't come back. However, it does, we do have treatment failures. And unfortunately, uh, at least according to the research done on this, this group, it's, it happens about 11 to 35%. I think some bugs are worse at uh, failing uh, treatment um, and, and each, each site uh, in practice probably has their own uh, tally as to how much uh, treatment failure for these infections there are. So, okay, getting into the study, this is a open label randomized controlled non-inferiority trial. 
where they compared six weeks versus 12 weeks of antibiotic therapy in patients with microbiologically confirmed prosthetic joint infections. Now, all these patients that they saw in the study, ultimately, uh, they had to have uh, a quote-unquote appropriate surgical uh, therapy first, followed by the antibiotic therapy. And these surgical procedures could have been one, a one-stage implant removal and exchange, a two-stage implant removal spacer and then exchange uh, and a second date, or they could have had the debridement and implant retention, what we uh, uh, tend to abbreviate as a DARE, D-A-I-R. And this was followed by at least, I guess, uh, most patients got about seven days of IV therapy and then were switched to PO therapy. And when they are randomized, they, are, they received six weeks or 12 weeks. Uh, of PO therapy with no suppressive tail. I think that's uh, one important distinction that we'll talk about here in a minute. One thing I, I also wanted to point out was this was a this was a study performed in France in 28 sites in France, and there were a median of seven prosthetic joint infections at each study site. And so there are some differences in how prosthetic joint infections are, are treated in the, in the UK and France uh, and typically uh, as compared to the typical standard of care that we uh, tend to do here that I think are also important for us in interpreting these results. Uh, Ted, is there, is there any other important things that I need to point out with the, the methods no, I here? Think the important things are that it was prospective, it was randomized, it was... Uh unblinded, the, the investigators knew what treatment arm people got, so there was no um, <clears throat> placebo. Um, they looked at um, surgical procedures that they did, defined as appropriate, and they used the IDSA um, definition for what was appropriate surgery for a dare, but they didn't break it down into early, delayed, or late infections. And so you do wonder, there's no data given, whether some of the dares were actually in a delayed population that, that in the United States, we wouldn't do a dare. We just don't have that information. Mm. Um, so that's one thing that I would point out. The other thing that I would point out is that their definition of the same organism, in the United States, we use two cultures with the exact same organism. Um, in this study, they, used, they were a little bit more rigorous with their definition. They use two cultures, operative cultures, that had the same organism unless it was a skin flora. Uh, and then they required three cultures with the same organism. So that was a little bit more rigorous. Um, they included patients that were uh, primary infections or patients that had failed uh, one treatment, but not two treatments. So they limited their population to that. Um, they did look at um, both primary infections and um, um, secondary infections if the patient hadn't had a joint replaced um, more than one time. Mm -hmm. So those were the things that were uh, stood out to me in the in the methods, um, and I'll let you take back over. So, yeah, that, that's a that's a great point, uh, Ted. I think um, you know as I think about my practice personally, 
I'm already kind of wondering like, well, does this apply to almost 40% of my patients that I don't get a positive culture to? Um, and, and as you, as you emphasize there, the, um, it was up to the surgeon as to whether or not what surgery they actually performed for the treatment. And so that we don't necessarily know why they picked one or the other, whereas we have guidelines, I would say, to, to determine which is best for our patients uh, that develop these infections here. Okay, uh, the results, there were, so uh, one thing that I think is important is the recruitment, the study occurred uh, starting in late November of 2011, and it was completed in 2015. They recruited a total of 410 patients, uh, or 205 in each each arm. Uh, there were several, there were a few that had dropped out for various reasons. Um, but the, the important thing with that timeline here is that the IDSA guidelines for treatment of prosthetic joint infections came out in 2012, specifying a difference in uh, how how we treat these infections which includes a six week course of treatment. Plus if there's implant retention, we give a PO tail. And even since then, uh, there have been uh, some studies that suggest that even with an exchange, uh, even with a two stage, uh, a lot of people are now starting to give PO tails well after that, which uh, is, is certainly controversial in our uh, infectious disease world. Now, the uh, procedures that occurred, and I'm curious to hear uh, your take on this, that 41.3% of the procedures were uh, debridement implant retention, 37% were one stage, and 21.5% were two stage. And, and also the bugs that grew, staph aureus was identified in 38% of them, and then coag negative staph uh, was was identified in, in uh, uh, almost 30% of them as well. Um, is, is that distribution of, of procedures typical for prosthetic joints here in the U.S.? So we decide on what types of surgical procedures to do based on uh, the timing of the infection. So in the United States, uh, primarily uh, we'll do a, a DARE procedure with early infections. So that's infections within um, four to six weeks of surgery um, with symptoms less than 20 to 21 days is the, is the uh, recommendation. Or in late infections, those are infections greater than uh, one year out with symptoms less than 21 days. Um, that is not defined in the study. So we don't know if like some of the delayed infections that occur between four to six weeks after surgery and one year, some of those patients uh, received errors. That information is not provided in the study. So what procedure is done really depends on what population you're looking at. Um, if you're looking at staph infections, um, those are often gonna be in early infections or um, in uh, late infections. And so, in that situation, you're gonna have a higher proportion of patients that may undergo a DARE. Um, so in those delayed infections, those patients should always get a one stage or two stage, at least that's the standard of care in the United States. Um, most of them get two, a two stage 
because the concern is the biofilm is well developed in that population. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, of course, the randomization, uh, they, they stratified the procedure, so they tried to kind of keep it even on each uh, group. I think they did a pretty good job of that. Uh, and then they, they, they tried to stratify by bug, but there was, a, uh, speaking of staph aureus, I think there were more, 38% uh, in the six-week group versus 30% of those in the 12-week group, which I think, in, in, in my mind, that uh, kind of biases towards... Uh, uh, six week uh, being worse or not inferior, essentially. A couple other things to point out here in the results uh, before we get to the primary outcome. Um, most people received rifampin and fluoroquinolones, and 51% of them received both. And so I think this is, you know, again, a little foreign to me, but honestly, this is where I really uh, appreciate the vertebral osteomyelitis guidelines because they have that nice little table of PO uh, antibiotics that I can go to if I am trapped and I have to compromise and give patients prolonged uh, PO therapy for these musculoskeletal infections. And so I'm curious your thoughts about the rifampin fluoroquinolone combination and given that for 12 weeks. So, so that's a standard practice in Europe. Um, it is very common for the Europeans to use uh, seven to 14 days of IV antibiotics, which is what was done in this study primarily, uh, followed by a prolonged course of oral uh, antibiotics. And if they can use a quinolone, if the staph species is quinolone sensitive, uh, they'll use a quinolone and rifampin. And there's good data in Europe that it is effective. Um, we don't routinely do quinolone sensitivities on our staff species uh, because it's not a common practice here in the United States, um, but it is a well-established practice in Europe uh, and it is efficacious, it does work. Um, and so in this study, their first reference is the Zemmerlich study in 1998 that uh, is a terrible study, but uh, is an interesting study because of it does show the effectiveness of that strategy for many different patients that have orthopedic hardware infections. So it is a practice that is pretty standard in Europe. Uh, it's not one in the UN, United States. And I think if you're going to adopt that practice in the United States, you have to make sure that your micro lab does uh, sensitivity testing uh, for quinolones. You can't just assume the staph species is sensitive to quinolones. The thing that struck me as unusual in this study is they use rifampin for strep species, which uh -huh. is not the standard here in the United States. And I think there's very little data for doing that. Uh, but this study did use rifampin in that population. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that uh, kind of bothers me too. I, it, it, both of those alone uh, are, have a very low threshold for developing resistance on therapy as well. And and I, uh, if I'm going to use either for a gram positive, I, I would make sure I use at least one other uh, antibiotic on there. Um, another thing that was interesting to me, looking at the cultures, the and I, I kind of had to do a little bit of uh, arithmetic on my own here, but the there were 221 methicillin sensitive staph, which in, I, I believe included both. Uh, staph aureus as well as the coag negative staph, which is ultimately out of 312 staph, there, that's about 71% methicillin sensitive staph, which I, I think 
is a little bit uh, higher than we tend to see. Uh, it's probably a little bit closer to 50-50 as far as methicillin resistant versus methicillin sensitive staff, uh, including coagulated staff, um, which may speak a little bit to the uh, difference uh, that we would see. The primary outcome, which is, uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, prosthetic joint infection within two years, um, uh, what they call a persistent infection, which means they had the same bug grow from the uh, original infection with the same phenotype uh, and susceptibility uh, profile. Um, they, that, uh, they found that occur in 18% of the patients in the six-week group, and then 9.4% in the 12-week group. And so that was a absolute difference of 8.7 percentage points. However, the 95% confidence interval was 1.8 to 15.6. And that 15.6 was higher than their predetermined uh, uh, upper boundary of confidence interval of 10 percentage points. And therefore, it did not meet the criteria for non-inferiority. So it was not non-inferior, which is a, a fun statement grammatically. Um, the secondary outcomes included treatment failure due to a new infection, uh, which occurred in 6.8% in the six-week group and 10% in the 12-week group, uh, which is a little bit interesting. Uh, that, to me, is, 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 is heterogeneous compared to the primary outcome. So they, they determined that six-week uh, group is technically sh is, is lesser uh, than the 12-week treatment group. And, and, and I guess... You know, this is where we can we can spend the rest of the discussion on that. This is, you know, does this mean uh, that we should be treating prosthetic joints for 12 weeks at least, hands down, and never six weeks, even if they exchange the implant? Uh, and why or why not? Um, this this to me, just right off the bat, is a little bit outdated uh, information, but nonetheless, is important contribution to the library of literature and prosthetic joint infections. So I don't discount this study. It was a very heroic study to undergo. We, we don't get a lot of these uh, types of uh, studies like this, but we can uh, also nitpick uh, and, and nuance and, and uh, ask for different studies to actually get into the uh, which, how, what is the best duration for a one stage or a two stage or a chronic infection or a late infection? Uh, th th I don't know that this is the answer for uh, all those. Uh, what do you, what do you think, Ted? Is this? So a couple things to point out. I mean, <clears throat> so the study, um, uh, what they um, set out to, to test was looking at six weeks versus 12 weeks and all prosthetic joint infections. And um, currently our standard of practice is not to treat these groups all the same. And you're gonna see some of the differences in the subsets that are in this study. So I would be very careful about extrapolating this study 
in our practice today in the United States. Um, and the way I interpreted the study is that in the six weeks group, 18.1% um, had recurrent infections with the same organism. And the 12 week group, it was 9.4, as you'd mentioned. And so this would suggest that maybe 12 weeks is better, but, but certainly um, did not meet their criteria for non-inferior. So they would justify that this is okay to use six versus 12 weeks. But again, this was all of the different um, infections. So it's early, delayed, late, and it was regardless of what procedure they used. And when you look at the subsets, which are broken out um, in the um, figure two, you can see that the top of the figure, you can see all patients, uh, but you can see that there are some pretty big differences in a DARE versus a two-stage versus a one-stage. In the United States, for a two-stage, we would just give six weeks and be done. And so throwing that fairly sizable population in makes that uh, difficult to interpret the other two groups. The other thing that was striking to me in this study was how successful the one stages were. This one stage procedure seemed to perform the best um, uh, as far as outcomes. And I'm not sure that that's been my clinical practice, but uh, that, that's what they showed in this study. Um, and they were, you know, in this study showed that um, the one stages did just as well with six versus 12 weeks. Again, you need to be very careful because this study wasn't powered to look at these subsets. It was powered mm -hmm. to look at all the population, all comers. And I, I think that um, that's probably the primary weakness of this study is that you can't look at all comers. We think that these populations are different. And I think that the, the breakdown of the surgical procedure um, suggests that they are different when you look at, at the success rate of those three groups. So um, I would be very careful extrapolating all comers, the results of this study for all comers for each subset. Although I do think that this does provide some interesting information in this study. I, I don't use this study to guide my practice um, uh, because I, they grouped all these patients together. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear. And I, uh, I think one thing I, when I read the title of this, uh, I said, oh no, does that mean the surgeons are going to start asking me to give IV therapy for 12 weeks? Uh, and it certainly uh, is important to realize this. There, there are so many nuances to uh, each case uh, that need to be taken into account. And, and as the study, while I think heroic in their attempt to answer the question, still does not get at the... Uh, all these uh, different cohorts of patients that, that actually we, we tend to see. And so um, uh, nonetheless, an important study uh, and to the literature here, I think uh, this stuff is really fun to talk about. Uh, you know, we, we see a lot of these types of infections and uh, as you guys take this uh, study uh, into your own uh, facility and think about it with your surgeons and, and ID docs. And um, I think uh, a few takeaway points here is uh, one, you, uh, this is, does try to combine the, all these heterogeneous patients into uh, one outcome. And, uh, and I think 
that is, is just very difficult to do. And I think the microbiology is different in the study than, than what we tend to see. And, and the standard of care is pra practice is different uh, in, in France and the UK than we tend to do here. And so it's, it's very difficult to extrapolate these results to what we might see here. Um, and if you have any specific questions, I, I encourage you to reach out to your DASON liaison or, or me. Uh, we'll make sure we have contact information for me uh, uh, on the website. We'll also attach this article as well as uh, some of the other articles uh, referenced during this podcast. And please tune in every two weeks for the next DASON Digest. Um, and Ted, thank you again for uh, coming in today to have this conversation with me. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me.